Father, once again, as we come to you in prayer on bended knee, I pray that you would pour out the Holy Spirit without measure upon our minds and our hearts. And into this room, Lord, that you give us the influence of the Holy Spirit that would lift us higher towards heaven this evening. Open our minds and understand that we may be able to see the deep things of your word. This evening, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 6. We're looking at the two last seals mentioned in this chapter, the fifth seal and the sixth seal. You might be eager to know why I chose that date, 1374. So here we go, okay? The fifth seal. Verses 9 through 11. As you see, it has one extra verse on top of above the first four. It has three verses. So a bit more important. So let's read verses 9 through 11. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Verse 11. And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants and also their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So once again, we're seeing... A bit more persecution, once again. Very interesting, isn't it? So we know that it must continue from 1374 up till a time period either before or until 1798. Because at 1798, it is at that time that persecution stops. So let's look at this. Slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, we see John. He is brought to the Isle of Patmos for the similar reason. Let's read that. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the Isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was persecuted for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the testimony of Jesus Christ? We'll, we will be covering that in Revelation chapter 12. So please, hold six more chapters, and I'll explain that. And then it'll become clear. But we're still in that time of persecution, and John was no different from anyone else. He was being a part of the remnant, or example of the remnant, rather, shows what sort of character we ought to have that when we're persecuted for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, we will be able to bear it. But let's go further on. If they are slain, how can they speak? You see, if we go back to Revelation chapter 6, we see a picture of souls crying out. Verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord? Now, if they're dead, how can they cry out? Can the dead really speak? consistently we see throughout the Bible know that the dead, when they're dead, they're truly dead and buried. They don't come back to life anymore. That's a whole other topic for us to study, of course. But you're beginning to see why Revelation expands throughout the whole Bible. Because it gives us concepts and ideas on which we need to study deeper to get a deeper meaning. But let's go to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10. The first instance of the similar concept that is used about dead people crying out. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10. What is this talking about? Cain and Abel. Cain was jealous of Abel's offering because God had respect upon it. And so he killed his brother and he goes hiding. But, of course, we know that we cannot hide from God. And God comes to him and says, Cain, in verse 9, where is Abel thy brother? And he says, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? He lied. He knew where his brother was or where he wasn't. And verse 10, and he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. What is that? Is that literal crying out? No, certainly not. Abel didn't, his blood didn't cry out. It was really calling for what? Judgment and vengeance. Crying out for judgment and vengeance. And <clears throat> we're going to see this theme appear more and more. People crying out. But notice this words, cried out. If it wasn't the dead people that cried out, who was it that cried out then? 
What happened? What caused them to cry out for vengeance and judgment? This is the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Now, we can spend 36 hours just on the Protestant Reformation. There is much to study there, a lot of history, a lot of historical books that you can go through, and about the reformers of those times and the things they went through, the things they understood, and the things they spoke about. But most of all, their life, how they lived it. But now you're beginning to understand why <coughs> excuse me, I chose the date 1374. Now, what's so special about this date? It's the beginning of the active work of John Wycliffe. He wasn't born on this date. He was actually quite old around this time already. But this was the active work, the beginning of the active work of John Wycliffe. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 2 and verse 28 speaks about him in the church Thyatira, coincidentally, because the fifth seal also lines up with the church Thyatira. You see, remember, church Thyatira goes from 538 to 1798. The fourth seal begins in 538, and he ends in 1374. And the fifth seal goes from 1374 to 1755. So it's still under the church Thyatira. But let's read Revelation chapter 2 and verse 28. The Bible says, and I will give him the what? Morning star. The morning star really was the Bible. Jesus Christ, through the Bible, and John Wycliffe was the first to translate the Bible into English. It was the beginning of the Reformation, Protestant Reformation. Historians through and through say that this was John Wycliffe. And we're confirmed with that in the writings of also Ellen White in her book, Great Controversy. So John Wycliffe was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And that is why I've decided to choose this date as 13, uh, 1374, the active work of John Wycliffe. <clears throat> the Morning Star. Now, the significance of this date, why? When I searched through this, through history, um, many authors said the mid-1370s. But I decided I really wanted to pinpoint it, give it a date. And uh, like I said, it's not exact. But why did I choose this date, 1374? Wycliffe began to write pamphlets against the Pope in regard to papal tribute and the right of Parliament to limit church power. Two things, papal tribute. Why do people have to pay money to the church? So he decided to write things against it. He started writing on that and also limiting what? Church power. That means he disagreed with having church and state together. And so this is when his active work against or in the Reformation began. He was working actively before that, but not speaking against the Antichrist, the papacy. Okay? So his active work began in 1374. There's much more research that you, can be, that you can do, and you can do it easily over the internet. So I encourage you to go back and research this more. <clears throat> now, how long? The souls under the altar are crying out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on the earth, on them that dwell on the earth? Now, in reference to this phrase, how long, let's have a look at it through the Bible. What does it mean when people cry out, How long? How long? Let's look at a few verses. Psalms chapter 13, verses 1 to 2. Psalms chapter 13, verses 1 to 2. <coughs> the Bible says here in Psalms chapter 13, verses 1 to 2, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? Why was he having sorrow? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? David was crying out, How long, O Lord, are you going to allow the enemies to exalt over us? So when the people are crying out in Revelation, the same thing is going on. They, they're asking, Lord, how long are you going to allow our enemies to exalt over us, to persecute us, to kill us? And that's why they're asking for Judging, judging, judging and avenging. They're asking how long? How long? So the first thing, there we see enemies exalting over them. Now Psalm 74, verses 9 to 10. Psalm 74, verses 9 and 10. 
We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet. Neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. They don't know. O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the, name, shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Once again, how long, Lord, are you going to allow our enemies triumph over us? Lord, when are you going to judge? Lord, when are you going to avenge? When are you going to take back revenge on those that are killing us? The blood is crying out. Cried out crying out through what? The Protestant Reformation. One more text. Psalms chapter 94 <clears throat> and verse 3. Psalms chapter 94. We're looking at this understanding of how long. Psalms 94 and verse 3, the Bible says, Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? Once again, how long? In reference to what? Enemies triumphing over them. So this word how long is used in reference to requiring what? Vengeance or revenge. And interestingly, in Daniel, it says, how long shall be the vision? Now, what was that talking about? You want to go there? Let's read this. I actually didn't include this, but let's go there. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. <clears throat> verse 13. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 13. The Bible says, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And how long, how long was it? 2,300 days was the answer. And Daniel fainted. 2,300 years? Lord, that's too long. That's why he fainted. And of course, we know it to be really what? The persecution only lasted for 1,260 years. But that how long was always in reference to God. How long are you going to let our enemies triumph over you, over us? When are you, when are you going to stop your sanctuary be trodden underfoot? So always in relation to vengeance and revenge. But... I want you to notice, when it, let's go back to Revelation 6 there. It says what? How long, what? How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge? Now, I want you to notice the order, though. Judgment always comes first before avenging. It always comes first before, because God cannot avenge before he judges. Because he's a just God. That must happen first. But what about judging and avenging? Let's go to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, chapter 24, and verse 12. We're doing good time, so I can slow down a bit. 1 Samuel, chapter 24, and verse 12. The Bible says, The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. Who is going to avenge? The Lord. The Lord will avenge. Even though the people are crying out, they are not taking action because they realize that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Deuteronomy 32. Let's see this consistently throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43. Same concept is brought out here. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43. The Bible says, Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. So once again, God will avenge the blood of his servants. That's clear. And lastly, it doesn't get clearer than Romans 12, 19, okay? If there's one text you don't want to miss writing down, it's this one. Romans 12, 19. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. The Bible says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. So God himself says, don't 
avenge. Don't revenge. It's mine. So when people persecute you, what do you, what do, you do? When they slap you on the cheek, give them the other. When they, when they take your coat, give them the other one. Yeah, take this one too. When they tell you to run a mile, run with them how many? Ten. No, two. You should run with them double. Whatever they do, give them double, right? Don't avenge. God says he will do it eventually. So whatever trials and persecutions you're going through at the moment with different people, remember, vengeance is not yours. It's God's. And certainly that's a lesson that we all must learn. It must be a lesson that we have to learn before the time of trouble comes. Because then we will truly be persecuted for no reason. Persecuted unfairly. And we need to learn this lesson that people in the Dark Ages had learned, learning to sing the song of the hymns while being persecuted. It's hard, it's tough. But that's why during this time of prosperity, God has given us this time of training. He allows these trials to come into our life. He allows people, and He doesn't want it, but He allows people that are unconverted, who hate you, who are your enemies, and they will make your life miserable. But God says, doesn't matter. I will avenge. I will avenge. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Blessing to be a Christian, to know these things. Vengeance is God's. Now we see the fifth seal that souls are crying out for judgment and vengeance. So what is coming ahead? Judgment and vengeance. It's that simple. The souls are crying out for that. So what we're going to see in the sixth seal is judgment and vengeance. How God is going to deal with those that are wicked and what He's going to give them for what they've done in the past. So that's the big picture of <clears throat> the fifth seal. But lastly, this question we have to ask ourselves, what is the vengeance of God? Second Thessalonians. Let's look at a few texts here. Second Thessalonians, chapter 1, and verses 7 through 9. Second Thessalonians, chapter 1, Verses 7 through 9. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What is the vengeance of the Lord? being punished with what? Everlasting destruction. Will they be burning forever? No. But the effects of the fire that they will feel in hellfire after the millennium will be everlasting. They will be burnt and gone forever. So, we're told here, God, when God says vengeance is mine, He tells us, don't worry. And He's casting us to a time period beyond the second coming, beyond the millennium, and says, vengeance is mine. They will suffer the eternal fire, which we know as hellfire. And we'll be looking at that in Revelation 20, the hellfire. <clears throat> so vengeance is God's. And it says that they rest for yet a little season. Now, what's another word for rest? Sleep. What is sleep in the Bible? That's correct. But let's put a Bible text with it. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Friends, Jesus is speaking here and it doesn't get any clearer than this, okay? John chapter 11 verses 13 and also 14. In relation to rest, Jesus tells them, you'll rest for a little while, but it's okay, giving a promise that after that little while, I'm going to resurrect you. But what is this? John chapter 11, verse 13, Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest and sleep. So Jesus turns around to his disciples, and it's recorded here in John. Then Jesus said unto them plainly, doesn't get any clearer than this, Lazarus is dead. So sleep is likened unto death. And so we know that the promise is given. Although you, be die, you die, the promise is given that you'll, you'll be resurrected. Again, so promise of a resurrection. But then it says, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. 
Now this gives us a connotation and understanding, and this is where it applies to us today as well. In the future, there will also be martyrs as well. And it says, until they should be killed, then those will be resurrected as well. And the resurrection is beyond our time period at the moment. No one's resurrected yet, except for a few. But this tells us that during our time period as well, there are going to be martyrs. And we, if we are faithful, one of two things. If we see Jesus coming, two things are going to happen to us. One of two of them. We're either going to be martyred or we'll be part of the 144,000. So here we're told when it comes to this understanding of the fifth seal, Jesus is forecasting to the future as well. Not just for their time period, because certainly there were people still being persecuted from 1374 until 1755. But there will be martyrs. There will be martyrs. So this is the picture that we see. Fifth seal, shorter time period, from 1374 to 1755. So we're seeing that how the churches are overlaid with the seals at the moment. But next, we'll be looking at the sixth seal, beginning in 1755. And then you're going to understand why I chose that start date, 1755, okay? So let's get into this. It's the sixth seal. Sixth seal. Revelation chapter 6, let's go there. And reading verses 12 and 13 to start off with. The sixth seal is the one with, with the most description. The first four seals had two verses each. The fifth seal had three verses. But the sixth seal, do you know how many verses it has? Six verses. Six verses to describe the sixth seal. And on top of that, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 is part of the sixth seal. But we're just going to cover the first six verses here, the last six verses of Revelation chapter 6. Let's read that, okay? Verses 12 and 13. The Bible says, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, And lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. So as soon as the sixth seal is opened, what happened? What's the first thing that happened? Hmm? Earthquake. The first thing that happened was an earthquake. So we're going to look at these events. An earthquake, sun, moon, and stars. And I want you to note the similarity between the four here. They're all natural events. Man cannot counterfeit this. He can try, but other events that will come up to show that it's a counterfeit. Truly, these four things must be sent from God. So let's look at these things, okay? Let's look at a few texts. Joel chapter 2 and verse 31. Joel chapter 2 and verse 31. Joel chapter 2, and looking at verse 31, the Bible says, The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. What is that great and terrible day? Second coming. Why does it say great and terrible day? We'll find out when we get to the end of the sixth seal. Okay, so hold on there. But we see that that great and terrible day will follow after what? The sun being turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Similar events that we saw, sun and moon. Okay? Now let's go back a few verses to verses 10 to 11. Joel chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. The Bible says, The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Now, I'm going to make it apparent that it's going to be the second coming, but we'll, we'll hold that thought for a moment, and we'll call it just the day of the Lord, okay? So shortly after this, the day of of the Lord should come. Let's look at a few other verses. Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verses 29 to 30. 
Matthew 24, verses 29 to 30. The Bible says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, what tribulation? Tribulation of what days? Pardon me? Was Reformation a tribulation? Persecution to the church Thyatira. Okay? Immediately after the persecution or tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. There you go, second coming. And the earth, and then sh- shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So immediately after, we have the sun, the moon, the stars, and then after that, the second coming. Keep that in mind. The second coming ought to follow briefly after these four events happen. Let's go on. Luke chapter 21. We don't need to turn there. Um, This is just a parallel text that tells us um, about the similar events. It's parallel to Matthew 24. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 to 27. But one more text I want to look at. Isaiah chapter 13. This is what we're interested in here. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. Let's go there. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. Speaking of the day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11, the Bible says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened, in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And verse 11, And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. So we see here, once again, the day of the Lord. Why is it terrible? Because he's going to punish the transgressors. Punish those that are still in their iniquity. Punish those that are the Laodiceans. Remember, what was the problem with the Laodiceans again? They didn't have victory over sin. So why is this a terrible day? Because there will be many that will be in the state of Laodicea, being in the church, maybe all their life. I pray not sitting amongst us this evening or listening. But I pray that the day of the Lord will be a joyous one to all of us. Let's go on. Great earthquake. Now, this is where we can line up our historical events. The great earthquake occurred none other than in November 1st, 1755. We call this the Great Lisbon Earthquake. The Great Lisbon Earthquake. And this is where we get our start date of the sixth seal, the end date of the fifth. Because it says what? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. So we're getting an understanding that around 1755, tribulation or persecution began to taper off a bit. Why? Because the introduction of the sixth seal. Great earthquake. And this great earthquake happened, Lisbon is found near Portugal, or in Portugal. And what happened in a matter of seconds, the whole city was flattened. Matter of seconds. Millions, thousands died. Have there been greater earthquakes since? Yes, there have been. But this was encoupled with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Okay, the first thing that it came, the first event that had to come was the earthquake, and this was the earthquake that shook the world. The Great Lisbon earthquake, 1755. Next, the sun and the moon. The sun was to go dark, not give her light, and the moon was to turn red. These two events happened together on the same day, on May 19, 1780. That day, the sun was darkened, and that night when it came out. The moon was red. It was eerie, people call it. And you can find all this historically. May uh, May, May 19, date 1780. So that was when the sun and the moon, concurrently together on the same day, went dark and turned red. And thirdly, stars of heaven that fell. 
This happened on November 13, 1833. Great event that happened here in the U.S., actually. Many could see it. That it was like fireworks across the sky, they described it. It went for a few minutes, stars shooting across. And that happened in 1833. So concurrently, these three events happened in that order, the way that it was described also in Revelation. But what was to happen after these four events? Second coming. How many years from 1833 until our day? Have you calculated recently? How many? Hmm? 173. Is that a short time? Is that a short time? Friends, we weren't meant to be born. None of us were meant to be sitting here 173 years later. He said, after those days, then shall appear the sign of the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds with great glory. Shortly after that, but it hasn't happened, and it still hasn't happened. What's going on? There's too many Laodiceans out there. That's the problem. I'm not pointing at anybody. I'm speaking what we've studied from the past, lining up the churches with the seals. Friends, the longer we tarry, the more of a tepid, more of a lukewarm state we're going to be in. We need to hasten Jesus Christ coming today. We need to have victory over sin. Do you see that? Or else Jesus Christ can't come. He will eventually but whether it be us or not, it's up to us to decide today. Let's go on. It says the sun became a sackcloth of hair. Now, I want to look at this word sackcloth for a moment. Why does it mention sackcloth of hair? I mean, hair really isn't really associated with sackcloth sometimes. So let's look at a few texts here. Genesis 37. Genesis chapter 37 and verses Verse 34. Genesis 37 and verse 34. What is sackcloth associated with here? Genesis 37 and verse 34. The Bible says, And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. Why did he use sackcloth? Because he was mourning. He was grieving. He was sorrowing. Denoting sorrow or sadness. Okay? So the sun became sackcloth of hair. Sackcloth. Mourning. Sadness. What else? Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 3. Daniel chapter 9, we find here the beginning half of Daniel. We see Daniel praying. And he's praying for the sins of his people. Why? Because he thought that God had extended the prophecy of his people being captive in Babylon. So he's praying there, saying, Lord, forgive us, forgive us, for we have sinned against thee. But in Daniel chapter 9, in verse 3, it says this, And I, Daniel, set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. With prayer, supplication, fasting, sackcloth. So Daniel here is a prayer. He's praying. He's searching his heart. Lord, what, has, what is it that we've done against you? Please, help us, forgive us, bring us back into right relationship with you. Luke chapter 10, verse 13. What else about sackcloth? Luke chapter 10 and verse 13. Luke chapter 10 and verse 13. The Bible says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So what is sackcloth related to there? Repentance. So repentance is brought out. Sorrowing, deep heart searching, sadness. During this time period. One more. Psalms chapter 69. Psalms chapter 69 and verses 10 to 11. Psalms 69 verses 10 and 11. 
The Bible says, When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting that was to my reproach, I made sackcloth also my garments, and I became a proverb to them. What is the sackcloth related to there? Chastening, fasting. So here we see sackcloth denoting sorrow, sadness, deep heart searching, repentance, and chastening. Or another word for that is afflicting. Afflicting your soul. Friends, this is denoting none other than the anti-typical day of atonement. The anti-typical day of atonement. Now, if you would like to study more into that, you have to go back. I don't have time to cover this through this time that we have studying the book of Revelation. Um, but I will be covering this this Sabbath here at the Thai Church for Divine Service. What is the anti-typical day of atonement? Why is it so important to us? What is this talking about? And is it really relevant to us to our time? If there's anything at least that we've gleaned from these few verses, is that during our time period we should be in sorrow or sadness. We should be searching our heart deeply. We should be repenting, putting away the sins of our past, and also afflicting or chastening our soul. When's the last time you've done that? Or have you done that? Or has the world caught you up in all the pleasures and rejoicing and partying and all the graduation parties and birthday parties and all these sort of things that we're getting caught up with? Foolishness in our God's eyes. What He wants us to really do is search our own heart now because He can come at any moment. And signs do tell. Earthquake, sun, moon, stars. We thought that maybe that was enough to wake us up to our condition and be ready. But 173 years have passed since then. And we're still here. Sad, isn't it? Well, let's look to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 14. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 14. Continuing on. We have a few more verses to finish this chapter off. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 14. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Sounds like the second coming picture. The heavens were departed as a scroll. Now let's look at a few verses in this. Dramatic events that leading up to the second coming. Isaiah chapter 34. Talking about the heaven being removed and passing away as a scroll, rolled up as a scroll. Isaiah chapter 34 and verse 4. Isaiah chapter 34 and verse 4. The Bible says, And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. Now we know where John got his idea of writing about this from. Verse 4 and continuing, And all their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falleth off from the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. We saw that in verse 13 of Revelation chapter 6. Fig trees, casting their untimely figs to the earth. Talking about the second coming. Let's also look at 2 Peter. Furthermore, a few more texts about this. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 10 through 12. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 10 through 12. Speaking of that heaven passing away. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, the Bible says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What things shall be dissolved? All the works of the earth, everything under the heavens, even in the heaven itself and the earth, everything. That means this, that means this, that means this. Whatever you're sitting on, whatever we're in, it'll all be dissolved. Watch this. Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be? In all holy conversation and godliness. You're sitting here, and you realize that everything's going to burn up. What are you doing? What <laughs> What sort of person should you be? Should you be gathering everything on this earth to build another tower maybe to get out of heaven? Maybe we should make our, our, our home on Mars. Is that what we should do? 
Everything's going to burn, friends. Everything. Verse 12. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Can you not know that nothing's going on when Jesus Christ comes? Certainly not. Everybody will know when Jesus Christ comes for a second time. Everyone will know about this. <coughs> but what sort of person are you? Are you gathering things for this earth? Or are you laying treasure up in heaven? You know now. Jesus is going to come and everything is going to burn with it. But let's go back to Revelation chapter 6. Clearly, verse 14 is speaking about the second coming. But now, let's go down to our closing verses, verses 15 to 17. The last three verses of Revelation chapter 6. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? How many men? How many men went and hid themselves? Every man. But the question is asked, who shall be able to stand? We'll answer that question more fully in Revelation 7, two days from now. But let's look at this text here. Where is the first instance that we find of hiding in the Bible? Garden of Eden. Let's go to Genesis, shall we? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. Do you want to be hiding? I don't. So let's pay close attention to these verses. Though it be the last, it is the most important of all the verses that we have been studying this evening. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, the Bible says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. That voice that was so soothing, that was friendly to them, that was loving to them, they heard it and they hid. Why? Why did they hide? Let's go to verse 10. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid. Because what? I was naked and I hid myself. What was the reason why they hid themselves? They were naked. They were afraid. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. Speaking about something that we've already studied. The Laodicea church. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. We see some nakedness here in this chapter too, this church. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, the Bible says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. But then it says in verse 21, To him that overcometh. What do we need to overcome again? Sin. We need to overcome sin in the church at Laodicea. But if we don't, we're going to be naked. And at the final day, the final reckoning of everything, what are we going to do? We're going to hide from God. So why are the people in Revelation chapter 6 hiding? They haven't overcome sin. Friends, if there is any preacher or any person that you ever come across and they tell you you can sin and live till Jesus Christ comes, they are telling you you will hide in the day when Jesus Christ comes. You will ask those rocks in the mountains to fall on you. That's how serious it is. If a preacher gets up in a church and tells you, friends, it's okay, we cannot overcome sin, look, I cannot do it. You need to get up and walk out. Or else you're sitting there being partaking of his evil. Yes, we can sin and live till Jesus Christ comes.
But that's not the case. We studied that. Laodicea church is clear. Jesus tells us we can overcome. We can overcome. We can overcome. Remember that. Laodiceans are naked. And the people in Revelation chapter 6 are spiritually naked as well. What, but what are they hiding from? What are they hiding from? His wrath. It says, for the great day of his wrath has come. Now, here's a question that I need to ask you. In Revelation, there are two wraths, okay? First, let's go to Revelation 12, 17. It talks about a dragon in Revelation 12, 17, okay? Revelation 12, 17, the Bible says, and the dragon was wroth with the woman. So there we see the dragon's wrath. Now, in Revelation 14, 10, we see a different type of wrath here. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10, the second type of wrath that is mentioned in Revelation. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of who? God. So in Revelation, we see the wrath of the dragon and we see the wrath of God. Now, here's a very simple question. Which wrath would you rather receive? Dragon or God? Dragon or God? Who wants the dragon's wrath? So the rest of you want God's wrath? Is there a choice C? Die before the wrath comes. But let's not pray that we'll all be dying, okay? God needs some people alive at the end of time. But what's more fearful to receive? God's wrath is certainly more fearful to receive. But let's look at this wrath, okay? The day of His wrath is come. And the question is, who shall be able to stand in the day of His wrath? What is this wrath? Let's go to Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1. What is the wrath of God? And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? It is the seven last plagues. And the question is, who shall be able to stand? For there will be a group of people that will be standing through the seven last plagues. Who are they? Come back on Wednesday to find out. <coughs> but the question asks, who shall be able to stand? So it's not so much, are you able to stand at the second coming, but are you able to stand at the seven last plagues? And that is before the second coming. So when are the seven last plagues? After the close of probation. So who shall be able to stand just prior to the close of probation? Question, are you able to stand today? Because salvation is not a lifetime experience. It's on a daily basis. If you cannot stand today, if you have not overcome what? Sin in your life. You are not able to stand in the future. But it says, who shall be able to stand? Let's look at this. In the understanding of standing, what about it? Let's go to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. And verse 15. What about standing? Ezra chapter 9 and verse 15. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. Why couldn't they stand before God? Because of their trespasses. We cannot stand before God when we are in our sin. Clearly, the message is coming through and through. Friends, we need to have victory over sin. There's no such thing as sin and live, sin and live. That is impossible. It does not go together. Sin and God do not go together. And that is why Satan had to be kicked out of heaven. Or else if he remained there, God naturally, with his brightness and his glory, would have destroyed him. So actually, God was merciful in kicking Satan out of heaven. He was merciful. But what else about standing? Psalms 24. Let's go there. 
Psalms 24. Who shall be able to stand? Psalms 24, and looking at verses two, 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 of Psalms 24. Who shall be able to stand? The question is asked in verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And here's the answer in verse 4. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Four things. Clean hands, pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, and nor sworn deceitfully. Let's take a moment and look at the first two things. Clean hands and pure heart. Clean hands simply meaning pure actions. Clean heart, pure heart meaning pure thoughts. We need to control our thoughts. No daydreaming. We need to control every moment of our thoughts, friends. Because really, the root and offspring of all sin begins in our mind. So we need not just clean hands, not just looking good outwardly, but in the heart. Needs to be cleaned through and through. But let's look at let's go a bit deeper in this understanding of clean hands and pure heart. Let's go to James chapter four. James chapter four and verses seven and eight. James chapter four, verses seven and eight. What about clean hands and a pure heart? The Bible says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye what? Sinners, and purify your hearts, ye what? Double-minded. So we see here, sinners. That's clear. We know that sinners aren't going to heaven. But it brings out another aspect of pure heart. What are they? Double-minded people. Now, what about double-minded? James actually talks about double-minded people. Let's go to James chapter 1 and verse 8. Double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What does it mean, unstable? It talked previous verse, about previous verses in verse 6. Wave, he's like a, a ship in the waves, tossed to and fro, up and down. Up one day, he, he feels on the peak of holiness one day, and now he, next day he's in the depths of despair. Next day he's up again and he feels like God is just blessing him and he's full of fire and faith. The next day he goes all the way back down. Double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. But why? What makes him like this, you see? If we go to verse 2 of James chapter 1, it says, My brethren, count it all what? Joy when you fall into diverse temptations. What's the reason why this man goes up and down every day? Because one day he meets with trials and temptations And he's down in the depths of despair. God, where are you? Why are you bringing this upon me? And then the next day, it seems bright and happy. The sun's out and the birds shine, are singing. And he's happy. He's up there again. Friends, a double-minded man is not going to get to heaven. He needs to learn to be consistently walking with God day in and day out. Through the trials and tribulations that he or she faces day in and day out, they are consistent. Not up and down, not to and fro, back and forth, but they are stable upon one person alone, that is Jesus Christ, our rock and our salvation. So this double-minded man, he doesn't have pure thoughts. But let's go back. Psalms 24 says, And hath not also lifted up his soul unto vanity, Now, what is that talking about? I mean, Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, all is vanities. But what about this lifting up of his soul unto vanity? Let's look at Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse (coughs) 4. Excuse me. What about lifting up your soul unto vanity? Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, the Bible says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. 
We will understand the experience of justification or righteousness by faith. And that is exactly what the Laodiceans need. Gold tried in the fire, faith. Righteousness, that white garment, just righteousness by faith. So the seals is also reiterating the experience that we need to have if we do not want to hide from Jesus Christ at the end of time. The just shall live by faith. And the second thing that was brought out in Psalms 24, nor sworn deceitfully. Now, another word for deceit is guile. These people have no guile. What's another word for guile? Lies. Lying. These people do not lie in whatever occasion. Now, us human beings are so smart, we create fancy words for, for different things. Laziness, we call it, um, what's that? What's that syndrome where people get really tired just really easily? Chronic fatigue syndrome. I don't know. I, I, I can't speak it out, but <laughs> I, know, I never <laughs> experienced it. But, you know, really, that's just laziness. <laughs> when we talk about, oh, I was just kidding, you know, we, start to, we, we make these jokes and we lie about it. And they say, oh, I was just kidding, I was just kidding. Is it still a lie, though? Yes or no? If you were just kidding, is it still a lie, though? Yes. Friends, the people that will be able to stand in the last days do not even utter one lie. I don't care whether you meant it or didn't. I don't care whether you're joking or having fun. I don't care whether you're trying to get your friend out of trouble. It's still a lie. Revelation 14, 5 speaks about a group of people with no guile. Their names, the 144,000. So we know that at least 144,000 shall be able to stand, according to Revelation 14, verse 1. But in 14, verse 5, the Bible says, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So, Somehow, Jesus brought out, the book of Revelation has brought out one commandment that we commonly transgress. Thou shalt not lie. Now, it will bring out more, (coughs) but here we see clearly one of the characteristics is that they do not lie. They do not lie. And of course, we use another word for that. It's called exaggeration. Okay. But, hey, look, we're all humans. We're all walking this road together. Let us encourage one another. Don't say, hey, you're going to hell. You, you just lied. Don't say that, please. Well, let's say, friends, remember what we studied in Revelation? We shouldn't lie. Why don't we pray about this and ask God to give us the victory over this? Because all of us have this problem, I know. I've experienced it myself. And I, by God's grace, I still need victory over it. We all do, Daily. But the question is, who shall be able to stand? Romans chapter 5. Let's look at some other texts, okay? Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, I realize that I'm going on a limb by saying all these things, and they're being recorded, and they'll get sent around here and there. Um, I ought to put my email address on this too, shouldn't I? So people and ask me questions. But Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. What about standing? The Bible says here, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. How do we stand? That's the result of being able to stand. Where do we stand? In this grace. Now, what is grace again? We studied this before. Grace is a gift. A gift which leads to what? Salvation, Salvation or eternal life. Through who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who came to save us from our sin. So do we need grace? Yes, we do, friends. And those that stand at the end of days will truly, once again reiterated, had victory over sin through the grace of Jesus Christ. 
But one more. 1 Corinthians 2.5. What does it mean to stand? 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5. The Bible says <coughs> that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the what? In the power of God. So we do not stand in the wisdom of men, but where? In the power of God. So what is the power of God? Romans 1.16, we've read this multiple times, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And what is salvation? To be saved from something. Saved from what? Sin. Friends, over and over again, we see victory over sin message coming through and through. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Why Jesus Christ? Why did He come to this earth? To save us from sin. If He didn't come to save us from sin, then why did He come? Give me one good reason other than saving us from sin and I'll believe. Why did He come? If He didn't come to save us from sin, then he, we are ashamed of the gospel. We are ashamed of the gospel. But in 1 Corinthians chapter Chapter 1 and verse 18, it also says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved by it, it is the power of God. The preaching of the cross. Not the wearing of the cross. The preaching of the cross. That is how we're saved by it. The preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. That is what we ought to stand in today. If we're, not, if we're not experiencing victory over sin, it's foolishness to us. Why? Because we look at the cross. We understand about it, but we don't experience it. Remember what it said in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3? Blessed is the man, he that readeth, and they that hear, and they that keep the words of this prophecy. It's not enough to understand about the cross. It's got to become your experience that cross has got to give you victory over sin. It has to. 1 Corinthians 15.1. This is our last text for this standing. <coughs> Pardon me, it's our second last text. 1 Corinthians 15.1. Makes it even clearer. I hope I don't sound like a broken record, but here it goes. 1 Corinthians 15.1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand. So what do we have to stand in? The gospel. But finally, let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 6, our last texts for this evening. Ephesians chapter 6. Standing in the gospel, standing without sin. But here, what is it talking about? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 18. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand. It tells us that there is a part for us to play in wanting to stand for God. Verse 14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Verse 7, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And lastly, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. The armor of God. We need the armor of God to stand. But friends, we've been studying it. We've actually been studying the armor of God. Let me show you. We have the helmet of salvation. Have we talked about salvation? Sure, we have. Through who? Jesus Christ. Breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith. Righteousness by faith. Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's what we have been studying. Belt of truth. And lastly, the shoes the gospel of peace. The Bible, the Word of God, is truth. It tells us about 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about Jesus Christ? He came to give us salvation. Salvation from what? Sin. But how do we get this salvation? We need to have the experience of righteousness by faith. If there's anybody that needs to understand this message, it is us, the Church of the Laodiceans. That is a counsel that the faithful and true witness has given to us. And I pray, O oh friends, that we will be able to stand in that last days. But we need this experience tonight. We need the understanding, and more so than just hearing it, but a literal application in our lives this evening. Are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to stand in the days where Daniel 12, 1 tells us there'll be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation? Are you ready for that day? I pray that all of us will be ready. And if you want, come back. I encourage you. Because Revelation is the book that will give us the map for how we can be ready in that day. The studying of the Word of God, especially the book of Revelation, will give you an entire new religious experience. And I pray that that will be your experience as we go through this book. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Let's kneel. <coughs> Father in heaven, Lord, forgive us, for we have lengthened the time of your arrival to this earth. Lord, forgive us for neglecting the study of your word. Oh Lord, I pray that for all of us bound here before you this evening, that you give us a true and new experience of the things that are written in your scriptures. Lord, help us to make the revelation practical in our life. Father, give us the courage and the boldness to sweep away the sin in our life, that we can open up the door and allow Jesus Christ to gain entrance into our hearts this evening. Lord, help us to do all that we can to stand in that day. May we leave the rest in your hands to change us from within. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.